Mark's Gospel, chapter 8, verses 27 to 29. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, and others, Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. He asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Messiah. Our second reading this morning comes from Jeremiah chapter 33, verses 14 to 18. Jeremiah 33, 14 to 18. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will live in safety. And this is the Lord, this is the this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And, and the typical priests shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to make grain offerings, and to make sacrifices for all time. Thank you, Keith. One of the great Advent readings. Have you ever heard the expression where someone is described as being a right Jeremiah? Now, as someone who has a generally sunny and optimistic disposition, I don't think it's something that's usually said of me. But I have often thought it of others. If you're not familiar with the phrase, calling someone a Jeremiah is saying that they are, to put it kindly, a glass-half-empty kind of a person. A Jeremiah is someone who is pessimistic about the present and foresees a calamitous future. A bit like Eeyore, you might say, or Marvin, the, the paranoid android, or Creature, the house elf, or Peter in the foyer. <laughs> I did check with him first. <laughs> One of the things about someone who's a Jeremiah is that they can often annoy those around them because they are often right. I mean, you only have to look at the way Greta Thunberg has been vilified in certain strands of the media. I know, you're getting political early, Woodman. Oh, well. You only have to look at the way Greta Thunberg has been vilified to see how little people like to be told that the climate crisis is real and imminent. Just this week, writing in The Sun, Jeremy Clarkson called her an idiot because her urgent call for environmental action has, in his opinion, killed the car show. Well, certainly, the Jewish prophet of doom from the 7th century BCE, Jeremiah himself, he made something of a career of annoying people with his dire yet accurate predictions. Like 
Private James Fraser in Dad's Army. Jeremiah spent years telling his fellow citizens of Jerusalem that they were all doomed. Their good life under King Zedekiah wasn't going to last because the Babylonians were coming. Uh, this is a, a rather disturbing image uh, of, from the 14th century of the Babylonians laying siege to Jerusalem uh, where the citizens starve and are reduced to cannibalism. Good times were coming to an end. And at one level, Jeremiah's predictions of Jerusalem's downfall to the Babylonian army could have been simply a case of him reading the political landscape and seeing something in the wind that was going to turn into a whirlwind of, of destruction. And if that had been all there was to it, he might not have made himself quite so unpopular. I mean, saying, look, there's a large and powerful army getting closer, I think we should probably prepare for the worst, is not hugely controversial. But what Jeremiah did that annoyed everyone so much was that he pointed at the large Babylonian army gathering on the distant horizon, and then he told King Zedekiah of Jerusalem that it was his fault the disaster was coming. Jeremiah wasn't just a prophet of doom, and he wasn't just right in his predictions. He was also annoying because he firmly pointed his finger at the king as the one who was responsible. By Jeremiah's understanding, Zedekiah had led his country in such a way that he had taken it away from where God wanted it to be. Zedekiah had prioritised war over peace. He had prioritised nationalism over cooperation. And he was about to reap the consequences of his actions, said Jeremiah. Meanwhile, Woodman bites his tongue to avoid making easy political comparisons with the contemporary world. But we'll get there. So, by the time we get to the passage that is our reading this morning, Jeremiah is languishing in the palace dungeon in Jerusalem, where Zedekiah has dumped him in a vain attempt to shut him up. It is so often the case, isn't it, that those who hold political power will go to extraordinary lengths to silence those who critique their power. Have you been following the situation in Hong Kong, where pro-democracy protesters are clashing with Chinese authorities? This is just one example of the many places around our world where power is seeking to silence critique. Zedekiah wasn't the first and he hasn't been the last. And yet, as Zedekiah discovered, the prophetic voice refuses to go away. It refuses to be silenced. Greta Thunberg hasn't gone away because a man in a petrol car has called her an idiot. The movement for democracy won't disappear because soldiers use tear gas and worse on those who are protesting for it. The thing is, eventually, truth will out. And oppression, bigotry, and powerful vested interests don't get to silence the uncomfortable voices of the prophets forever. One of my favorite Paul Simon songs, and I, I have many, is called The Sound of Silence. Now, 
I don't know whether Paul Simon had Jeremiah in his prison cell in mind when he wrote this song, but he certainly could have done. I'm just going to read the words of the last verse now, and my invitation is to hear this as the cry of the silenced prophet in any age. Fools, said I, you do not know silence like a cancer grows. Hear my words that I might teach you. Take my arms that I might reach you. But my words, like silent raindrops, fell and echoed in the wells of silence. And the people bowed and prayed to the neon god they made. And the sign flashed out its warning in the words that it was forming. And the sign said, The words of the prophets are written on the subway walls and tenement halls and whispered in the sounds of silence. Well, my apologies if that's just planted an earworm that you're going to be stuck with all day. But Jeremiah and those like him will not be silenced, despite the fact that they are rejected for proclaiming a message that is not only pessimistic, but which requires a change to society's destructive patterns of behavior if the disaster is to be avoided. The thing is, the masses hate a Jeremiah, and we all prefer an optimist. And to bring things right up to date, it does strike me that it's much easier to believe that we can get Brexit done as if it were some kind of slightly troublesome homework project that just needs a bit more effort than it is to believe those who tell us that leave or remain, the future is going to be complex, difficult and costly. It's so much easier, isn't it, with the general election coming up to vote for the confident, sunny optimist than to admit that reducing geopolitical and economic complexities to binary options is dangerously simplistic. And those who offer optimism in place of realism denying the warnings of the prophets and silencing the voices of concern on whatever issue, fall easy into the easy option of placing Jeremiah back into his dungeon and desperately hoping it's all going to work out okay. Well, it didn't for Zedekiah, and it rarely does, because Jeremiah's are usually right. And Jeremiah would not be silenced, and denying the problems that he proclaimed didn't make him go away. To use an example from slightly less close to home, withdrawing from the Paris Climate Accord doesn't make climate change go away. And so Jeremiah continues to speak from his dungeon beneath the palace. And what's so interesting is that the words he issues from his confinement contain a surprising message of hope. Sometimes... I find myself almost in despair at the world. I've taken to waking up at three in the morning recently, worrying about everything. I worry about global warming. I worry about the rise of the far right in Europe. I worry about the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction. I worry about terrorism. I worry about mass migration and about oppression and injustice around the world. And that's just the big stuff. Sometimes even sunny, optimistic Simon can find himself becoming a bit of a Jeremiah. How about you? So what does Jeremiah say next? 
Does he continue with his message that we're all doomed? Well, yes and no is the answer. There's no escape for Jerusalem from the Babylonian army on the horizon. The city will be besieged, overthrown, and the people taken into exile. But, nonetheless, Jeremiah explores what a sense of hope might look like in the face of the depressing message of imminent destruction. Jeremiah's message is both deeply troubled and deeply hopeful. At the time of his imprisonment, where we meet him in chapter 33 of the book that bears his name, there are no obvious signs of hope. The Babylonians are coming, and despair and destruction are coming to his beloved city. But still he speaks of hope, which comes not from a facile denial of the realities before him, but from a deep grappling with despair. And I find myself thinking here about a depth of spirituality that can embrace both hope and despair. Too often, my experience of church life over the years has been that we are supposed to convert from despair to hope, as if despair were some kind of sinful or shameful state from which we need salvation. I think Jeremiah offers us a more integrated model as he holds hope and despair together in his spirituality before God. The hope, he proclaims, comes from the depths of despair. And it is a hope that challenges the realities of the present. The hope of Jeremiah is something which alters the way in which one lives in the here and now. Because it allows the articulation of a new and transformative way of being in the midst of despair. So, he says, one day, one day that is surely coming, one day God will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. Understanding quite what he means by this uh, requires us to know a little bit of the Jewish backstory. The Jews of Jeremiah's time uh, had their security tied up deeply with the idea that their monarchy was a gift from God. A uh, picture of uh, David. And the stories of David, their archetypical king of ancient times, defined their nation, their understanding of who they were and who they were called by God to be. For the Jews of the Babylonian invasion times the stories of King David functioned a bit like the way that the stories of King Arthur function for Victorian England. I'll say a bit more what I mean by this. Just as the legend of Arthur and Merlin and Uther Pendragon forged the mythology that sustained the English empire, so the tales of Saul and David and Solomon undergirded the ideology of Israel as God's chosen people. 
And in the face of the Babylonian invasion, that ideology of David's, that Davidic kingship, was being shaken to its core. Because if Zedekiah was to be killed, and in the end he was, and his sons, it, was, it doesn't end well for him. If Zedekiah was to be killed, if Israel was to lose its king, then that would call into question all of the promises that God had made. This wasn't just a political crisis that Jeremiah was living through. It was a crisis of faith. And so, he says, just as a new branch can spring from the stump of a felled tree, even if Israel is toppled by the Babylonians, even if Zedekiah is killed and all his sons with him, still, says Jeremiah, God has not forgotten the promises he made in the olden days, and a new branch will spring up for David. If this sounds familiar to you, it may be because Jeremiah wasn't the only prophet to use this image of a branch of David rising from the roots of a felled tree. We find it in Isaiah as well. He uses the name of Jesse, King David's father, and he says, A shoot shall come out of the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. On that day, the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal to the peoples. The nations shall inquire of him, and his dwelling shall be glorious. And this passage from Isaiah, together with our reading from Jeremiah, stayed with the people of Israel through their time of exile. These two little sections from their prophets sustained their hope through the years of despair when their city was ransacked and they were in exile in Babylon. And then something interesting happened. Because even though the exile did eventually come to an end, and the exiles were eventually restored to Jerusalem, and their temple was rebuilt and their monarchy was re-established, the hope that an even better time, a better leader was coming, never really went away. What we're seeing here in our little reading from Jeremiah and its parallel in Isaiah is the birth of what became the Jewish hope for a coming Messiah. You see, even though the end of the exile marked a partial restoration, the extent of Israel's borders never got back to where the stories said they had been in the time of King David. The kings never had the political strength and autonomy that the stories of David eulogized and lauded. And instead, the restored Israel existed as a puppet nation, ruled by puppet kings, controlled at the mercy of whatever empire was dominant, from the Babylonians to the Assyrians to the Greeks to the Romans. And so the seed of hope for a righteous branch for David, planted by Jeremiah and nurtured through the despair of exile, grew into the hope for a coming Messiah a son of David, who would restore Israel's faith and dignity before God. But I'm jumping too far. Let's stay with Jeremiah for a moment longer. Let's rejoin him in his dungeon in the palace in Jerusalem with the Babylonian army on the horizon. 
Because Jeremiah tells us from the literal pits of despair what this hope will look like. For Jeremiah, hope, he says, looks like justice and righteousness, which are nowhere to be seen in his world at that time. He articulates a hope that someone will come who will embody justice and righteousness. This is a mind-altering moment because it sets the agenda for everything else that will follow. It defines the shape of the Jewish faith through exile, through restoration, right down to the time of Jesus. What, Jeremiah asks, would it mean for God's justice and righteousness to be embodied and enacted? What would it mean for someone to live out God's eternal intent of setting things right? What would it mean for the kingdom of Israel to become the kingdom of the Lord who is righteousness and justice? It is an astonishing articulation of hope in the face of overwhelming despair, and it hinges on righteousness and justice. In Jeremiah's world, righteousness and justice are gone. So for him to assert that God is righteous and that God is just and that God has not yet finished is a narrative of hope that has the capacity to change the world. And here's the thing. Jeremiah says all of this when the reality of it is nowhere to be seen. And I sometimes wonder what it would be for us when we look around at a world where terrorist events happen on London Bridge where we feel out of control with the issues that are before us and to hear that God has not yet finished with his project of righteousness and justice. And so we leap forward now to the coming of Jesus. We are, after all, in Advent. As we hear the stories of Jesus' birth over the next few weeks, It is not immediately clear that God is putting things right by sending a child who will be born in difficult circumstances and have to flee his home and country as a refugee. And as we read through the stories of Jesus' life next year and we get to Easter, it will still not be immediately clear that God is putting things right through the horror of a crucifixion or the testimony of a resurrection. And yet Jeremiah says that he is so certain of his hope that Jerusalem itself can be renamed the Lord is our righteousness. Because the hope that Jeremiah proclaims is not dependent on any human activity. It is dependent on God and God's action. He is saying that it is always God who gives new life in place of death. And that it is only God who brings new righteousness and justice into the very heart of the place where despair is most deeply felt. If Jerusalem, the city of death and destruction of Jeremiah's time, can become the place where hope enters the world so much so that its name is changed to the Lord is our righteousness, 
then hope can come to anywhere that despair is at its worst. Whether that is the lonely solitude of the human heart at three o'clock in the morning, or the communal hell of a war zone in Syria, from which two young sisters flee and live in a refugee camp and then rock up in London with no language skills, God has not given up. And so, because it's Advent, we come to Jesus, who asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. This hope that Jeremiah articulates that becomes the hope for a Messiah within the Christian story becomes fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is the one who embodies God's righteousness and justice. He is the one who brought and brings hope to all those whose lives are lost in despair. And for those of us who find ourselves living in turbulent times, not knowing who to believe or where to go for truth, the living hope that is Jesus, made known to us by his spirit and encountered in one another as we gather in his name, this gives us a hope that can sustain us through the darkest of nights. And so we pray again the Advent prayer, longing for a world transformed. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen. Let us pray. God of Advent, in a world of chaos, you can be very hard to find. The good news of your presence can seem at best a mystery. So teach us to wait for your unveiling and give us faith to trust in your revelation. When our world is in winter, comfort us with faith that the long dark nights and cold hard days do not last for eternity. Help us to learn the lesson of the skeletal tree against the winter sky and the dormant bulb in the frosted ground. Help us to trust that new life is already present within our world of winter and that days of darkness contain within themselves the assurance of your coming to all who seek you. So today we bring before you the needs of our winter world and we offer our faith in the inbreaking of your new season of righteousness and justice. We pray for our planet and we rejoice that progress has been made on tackling climate change. But we recognise that there is so much still to do and that countries will need the courage to act against self-interest if genuine change is to be achieved. Give us the courage to speak out and to call your world to the selfless path which brings life. We pray for all those who are victims of natural disasters. May we learn to live in ways that are in harmony with the natural world. In a world of darkness, 
we offer our faith in the inbreaking of your new season of righteousness and justice. In a world of war and terror, we pray for peace on earth. When nations and ideologies take up arms to fight for right, we find wrong on all sides. War has created the current crisis in Europe faced by those who have nowhere else to live. And refugees now seek new life far from home. Be with the sisters who will be coming to make their home in our area. But people movement, we know, leads to fear and suspicion. And violence and bullying stalk the streets and whisper in the corridors of power. We pray particularly for all those affected by the terrorist incident in London this week. May those who mourn be comforted. May those who are hurt find healing. May those who are wronged find justice. Lord, help us to find a new way where the spirals of violence find their end in you as you call us to a new way of being human where forgiveness trumps retaliation and the violence stops with us. In a world of violence, we offer our faith in the inbreaking of your new season of righteousness and justice. We pray for all those who suffer because of their faithful witness to your kingdom of peace. And we think especially of those Christians who face harassment, discrimination, slander, false accusation, detention and imprisonment because they will not turn from your path. We pray that they will remain strong in faith and trust despite physical and psychological abuse and that they will know your presence with them as they walk the costly path of the cross. We thank you for organisations like Release International, Actions by Christian Against Torture and Amnesty International as they face the darkness with unflinching gaze. In a world of suffering, we offer our faith in the inbreaking of your new season of righteousness and justice. We pray for those who find this time of year especially difficult. We think of those who find the loss of loved ones hard to bear when so many are focusing on family. We pray for those for whom the coming Christmas festivities speaks of unfulfilled dreams. And we ask that you will reveal yourself to those who mourn and to those who are sad. Be their comfort and joy. And may those of us who are happy be attentive to those who are not. In a world of grief, we offer our faith in the inbreaking of your new season of righteousness and justice. Loving God of Advent, we await your coming and we anticipate your revelation and we long for your unveiling. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen. <laughs>